Welcome to Life on Plato's Cave. I am Mario Veen. This is episode 34, Universities in the Climate Crisis with Aaron Cherry. In the allegory of the cave, Plato refers several times to something which could be akin to what we understand by integrity. If you're in a university or academic institution, Chances are that you've done some courses on research integrity and scientific integrity. But what is integrity at its core? So when the prisoner goes up, when they are released from the chains and they go upwards, Plato emphasizes that they don't just have to turn their head, but their entire body. So it's not just a matter of having the right knowledge, but everything else has to be congruent with it as well. Emotions the physical experience of it, everything. And later, when the prisoner returns back into the cave, Plato writes that they see the judges speaking about justice without ever having seen the idea of justice itself. So they're using words and concepts like justice, but it doesn't refer to what Plato, I guess, would call the essence of justice. So now that we are in a climate crisis, I mean, if you are one of those people who listens to science... What does integrity mean for a university and for an academic at the university? Our guest today is examining the role of scientists in the climate crisis and the relation between science and activism. He was one of the authors on a paper by Capstick, Jerry, Cox, Berglund, Westlake and Steinberger, published in 2022 in Nature, with the title Civil Disobedience by Scientists Helps Press for Urgent Climate Action. So I'll read you two quotes from this paper. This is the first one. The credibility of scientists is influenced by whether they are seen to be acting in line with shared values and promoting the well-being of others, and in the context of climate change, according to whether their actions clearly align with their message. In other words, whether they woke the talk. This is the other quote. Civil disobedience by scientists has the potential to cut through the myriad complexities and confusion surrounding the climate crisis in a way that less visible and dispassionate evidence provision does not, sending a clear signal that scientists believe strongly in the evidence and its implications, when those with expertise and knowledge are willing to convey their concerns in a more uncompromising manner than through papers and presentations. This affords them particular effectiveness as a communicative act, This is the insight of Greta Thunberg when she calls on us to act as you would in a crisis. Aaron Cherry has a background as an ecological scientist, science communicator and environmental campaigner. He received his original PhD in ecology from the University of Sheffield and went on to a position as a postdoc on a project researching climate feedbacks in the Arctic. He then left academia to focus his efforts on environmental activism and become a youth campaign coach working for a leading UK environmental charity. His past experiences have led him to become fascinated by the question of how to accurately convey scientific warnings of environmental risk in ways that help wake the public to action. To better understand this crucial conundrum, he has chosen to return to research and began a new PhD examining the interplay between reason and emotion in the communication strategies of organizations in the climate emergency movement. So Aaron, could you start by telling us a little bit about this new PhD that you're doing? I'm in a slightly funny position because um, I've actually done a PhD about 10 uh, years ago um, in ecology. And, uh, you know, um, that was a kind of natural sciences um, PhD at the time. And I had kind of Previous to that, done a bachelor's in zoology, and you know that was kind of very much the path that I'd been on. Um, so I'm actually doing another one, having never thought I'd ever do any further study again of that sort. Uh, and I've, I've uh, you know gone back to university, but I'm studying as a social scientist now. So I'm, my degree is in uh, sociology, and I'm looking at the sociology of um, science and how scientists um, interface with society. Uh, you know the way in which um, scientific knowledge is used in society and in particular i'm interested in the role that scientists are playing in the climate movement and so 
trying to understand the ways in which scientists use their knowledge, but also their authority in order to uh, argue for um, particular goals or ends or, or uh, policy objectives. Hmm. Yeah, in the last conversation, uh, I guess it's now two episodes ago with Ernst-Jan Kuiper. I spoke to him just the day after he was in a climate protest and he, he didn't do it personally, but there were also scientists there that stuck their research papers to police vehicles. How do you look at that? <laughs> yes, no, absolutely. So, so I'm, again, slightly funny in my position because I'm coming to, at this as kind of doing... Um, research from a position of a scientist who's also taking part in some of these kinds of protests so you know i am um i'm interested in it, in it because i've been doing it and i'm trying to understand what it means <laughs> and so you you are also a you're a climate activist would you yes. describe yourself as that yeah so very much so so like i said so my background is in natural sciences and i i was using that research working on that research um that took me uh to study climate cycle feedbacks uh, in the in this Arctic, trying to understand how permafrost thaw and so on is accelerating carbon uh, emissions from those environments and accelerating global warming. So, you know, my experiences in, in those places really um, alarmed me. Uh, I, I was you know, quite, um, you know, concerned, deeply concerned by what I've learned <laughs> about the scale of the climate and ecological crisis. When was this? Uh, this uh, this was um well it's the, it's over the last decade so so yeah. um you know i was doing that research in um between 2008 and 2016 or so right um and uh yeah i mean it was kind of lots of different things <laughs> i guess led to me at some point just saying i didn't want to continue studying the scale of the problem um I didn't want to carry on describing all of these impacts and feeling that it wasn't going to actually then lead to social change. And so I'd kind of gone in pretty naively, I think, um, with a view that, you know, to be a scientist is to produce knowledge that is then useful to society, that people can then act on that knowledge and make better decisions. And so I kind of had this kind of uh, uh, quite a simple kind of um, model of Kind of which we typically talk about as kind of like an information deficit model that we just didn't know enough or if we didn't if we didn't know it we just needed to communicate it more yeah uh, the public is not informed enough and we need to inform them of the facts and then they will act on them or the public the politicians as well right that's that's right yeah absolutely so i spent quite a lot of time trying to meet with politicians and, and, and you know give them briefing documents and so on um but at some point it became kind of clear that again it wasn't the lack of knowledge that was holding us back and it wasn't um uh you know uh, the lack of efforts to 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 teach and to share that knowledge i mean there's been report after report that's been produced um but we're still not seeing the actions that are commensurate to that in society um you know there's been promises made but then they never followed through and so on and and one of the things that's really became clear to me doing that uh um was the way in which you know, we were up against very powerful vested interests who were very effective at sowing doubt about science in the public discourse uh, through propaganda and PR efforts. Um, there was a lot of um, that uh, as well within our own institution. So I, I was uh, involved in supporting students on a, a campaign to try and get the university to divest from fossil fuels. And just seeing the the in institutional um, um you know, resistance to change that happened at every single step of that process um, really kind of made me realize just how how um, how important campaigning is as a way of trying to produce change. But also, you know, that that it's not simply enough to to produce knowledge and to give the facts. <laughs> um, you know, uh, or even to try and have a, uh, even just to win the argument, you can win the argument and still nothing happen, you know. So you would, you would pre present the evidence maybe about fossil fuels and the impact and, and the need to, you know, slow this down or, or stop new projects and uh, present your arguments, right? Yeah. And, and the, the arguments would normally be accepted, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, it, 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 on surface, they would say, yes, this is, you know, we accept that. And then nothing would change. Right. So, so there was a kind of a disconnect. And it was that that kind of really fascinated me as well, this kind of notion of this disconnect. So um, but I also saw that change was possible. And I saw that, you know, these students ultimately won their campaign. 
because they occupied the the finance office, right, and mm -hmm. caused a huge fuss. Uh, it was in the national media. There was loads of attention brought down on the university, and the university caved to that pressure. You know, it wasn't a rational process, but we were here in a in an institutional setting that was premised on the idea that knowledge and reason and argument was the way to do things. Um, so, so kind of, it was a real wake up call for me that that's um, that's how how um, things change really. Uh, yeah. and it's not not um, not really reassuring that that's that's the way things are, but I think you can definitely learn from that. So, and then because you're a scientist you want to study the role of activism scientifically <laughs> <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe that's that's right i mean I, i definitely like learning and i like studying and i like being yeah. part of the academy and and all of the kind of the freedom that, that of thought and and so on that gives you but um i i think for me yeah i i want to better understand why some scientists are now taking these actions yeah what why others aren't and also what does it mean for science and how how the public perceives science maybe um you know does it does it affect the integrity of the scientific enterprise as it were um what what's it mean for this social contract that that some people say there is exists between science and society so so those are the kind of questions that i'm kind of grappling at the moment with with my phd I recently wrote an opinion piece, but it's in Dutch, about um, the question that people were asking because there were some scientist rebellion people taking part in a, a protest against private jets uh, in Eindhoven airport. But they were also part, well, like Ernst Young, uh, part of this, the Extinction Rebellion blockade of the A12, and there's going to be another one in uh, at the end of May. Um, so I wrote something about that question that people ask is should scientists take part in this so you can say should in the sense of are scientists allowed to take part in this you can ask should they take part of this as a scientist yeah but you can also say should you take part in this like should as a scientist should you make sure that you have research integrity uh yes you should <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, I mean, I've thought about this a lot, and, and I was actually an author on a paper uh, not too long ago where we argued that scientists are justified in taking part in civil disobedience. Uh, so we set out a series of reasons why we thought that was the case. Um, we didn't necessarily say they should do. It's I think that's a matter of personal conscience. Yeah. But I, I, what I'm, what we were arguing is that there are reasons that it would be a sensible thing to consider to do at this point. Um, and so. That really boils down to the fact that we are in an emergency as far as I can see it, right? Like um, we are in a crisis. It's it's widely recognized as such. Uh, in the UK, the parliament has declared a, a climate emergency uh, officially. Uh, um, and so has many of the UK universities as well, right? Uh, they, they've officially declared that. So we recognize that we're in a very serious, urgent situation. We also recognize quite often that not enough is being done. Yeah. Um, But we've tried lots of other ways of trying to push for change, right? We, we've tried petitioning, we've tried writing letters, we've tried lobbying, we've tried um, producing knowledge and research and giving talks. We've, we've tried so many ways to try and push for more action, and none of them have really led to the scale of change that we need. Um, the, the kind of the, the social inertia is still very great. And so we have to then think about, okay, what can we do more that could help break through that and um, lead to more rapid change. And I think looking at past social transformations, civil disobedience has always been a, a key part of those transformations. Uh, we can look at in the UK to you know the women's suffrage movement or in the US to the civil rights movement and uh, Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks and so on. Um, we can look at these examples in history and see that when really dramatic changes in society have been brought about by you know, people breaking the law peacefully uh, with good conscience um, to draw attention to their cause, right? And I think, therefore, we know, at least, um, you know, historically, that this can seemingly lead to change. So then the question, I think, becomes, well, you know, why, why, why should scientists particularly consider doing that? 
is that their place? Is that their role? And I think for several reasons, I think it, it is. So, so one, it, you know, it's effective potentially. So therefore we should think about doing it. But then it's also, you know, it's, it's ethical because there is so much st at stake, right? There's so much harm that, that there could be happen as a result of the climate crisis not being uh, addressed. Um, it's harm that we know about more than perhaps most others as scientists who've studied this. Um, and therefore, I think we do have a kind of a sense of um, um, responsibility that might come with that to say that we should act on what we know to try and prevent that harm. Um, and, and, and civil disobedience, I think, can be really communicatively effective because, um, you know, what you're doing is you're, you're taking a stand and you're speaking out very, very publicly and you're doing so in a way that is almost sacrificial. Uh, you're taking a consequence often for your actions. And that's a message then. You're signifying that this is so important to you uh, and, and your uh, sense of yourself and what's important um, that you're willing to, you know, take on consequences in order to try and push for change on that issue. And that's a that's a message that you're sending to everybody else. And as scientists are very well trusted and respected members of society who are recognised as experts on these topics, when they do that, I think it carries extra communicative weight. Um, and then I think finally, just I think one of the reasons that I think it's important that we carry out civil disobedience is because it's very revealing of the kind of systemic barriers to change. It makes the invisible visible. And, and just by way of trying to explain that, well, one of the things that you often find is, you know, as people are taking part in these protests, um, it then forces a dilemma onto the governments. Uh, you know, do they, does the state react uh, and try to repress the protests or does it respond to the protests? And quite often it reacts to stop them to try and protect the status quo. And by doing so, it starts to become quite clear whose side the government is on. Um, so in this case, uh, you know, we're, uh, say, say this, uh, you know, the stuff that Ernst has been doing in, in Holland, where they're making a very reasonable demand uh, to stop fossil fuel subsidies, which has been promised by the governments already. And yet, when they make that demand, what does the government do? It puts uh, out water cannons to try and, you know, clear them off the roads. So, so the government is so entrenched in its support for the existing status quo that it's willing to, uh, you know, spray scientists with water cannons uh, in order to stop them making that point. And so, you know, that's a really strong message then to the public. You know, what's going on here? The government is in bed with fossil fuel interests and and that's the then revealing to the public the situation in a very visceral vivid kind of way yeah and politicians in the netherlands some of them are calling for a stronger disciplining of the peaceful protesters so yeah um do you have hope that we will face this crisis so so there's lots of ways i could try and answer that <laughs> um I think it's important to point out that I don't think you have to be optimistic or pessimistic in order to take action uh, about this, right? So so I don't want to be prescriptive to say that others have to feel a certain way. I think people um, need to make up their own minds and, and, and act. But for myself, I think it can de depend on the day of the week, partly, yeah. actually. Um, but, but no, I think a lot of the time I don't feel very hopeful. I mean, I, I think we are up against huge odds uh and and that's partly the the reason that we have failed to succeed so far i mean i think we're up against some very very powerful forces uh, and um so this it feels like a david versus goliath battle to me a lot of the time but david won his battle against goliath right so um i think for me hope is a very slippery concept and it's quite a dangerous concept at times um i think hope can lead to inaction I think hope can be seductive and, and placating, where people just hope that things are going to be okay. That someone yeah. else will fix it. or that, Of course, it can uh, result in technological solutionism that you think, well, someone, someone will invent something that will yes. take care of the problem. Yeah, yeah, it's magical thinking. Right, yeah, yeah. that's um, a good point. And I think, so for me, that kind of hope is, is, is something we should try to avoid, you know, Obviously, um, you know, 
things there there are going to be technologies that become available that we don't currently have and so on and that's that's all good and people should work to try and make them but they won't just happen on their own right <laughs> so so and i think this is the thing about all of this is that um what we need is activity right we need action uh, we need agency and for me that's what produces hope so the more people that are active the more hopeful i can be uh and so you know that's that's um that's how i normally think about these things hmm. um and and i you know there's the famous quote by gramsci about pessimism of the intellect but optimism of the will and this notion that you know it's actually no matter what you know how bad you think things look um you know you keep going and i hope to try and make them better and um i think for me when it really boils down to it i'm not doing this uh because i think it's from a kind of a consequentialist framework of I think I've done weighed up the costs and benefits and I'm taking these actions because I think yeah. this is going to be the most likely to succeed. It's it's more that I'm operating, a, I think, from a slightly more of a virtue ethics kind of framework where my sense of what is right and wrong is so violated by what is currently happening and the way in which governments are carrying on and just allowing the destruction of the things that I care about so much in the world that I'm going to try and resist that. I'm going to try and stand up for what I believe is right and good and, and stuff in the world. And so for me, it's it's that that's motivating me. It's that feeling of out outrage and injustice. It's the feeling of, you know, standing up for my convictions and, my, and what it means to hold on to my integrity. That's what gets me up in the morning to go out and do this thing again and again. Um, much more than, than any kind of particular sense that I'm going to succeed or I know that we're going to win or anything like that. Hmm. And do you look at that from sometimes I think about, uh, well, for because for me, it's easy because I have a five year old daughter. That's then I think, oh, yeah, but you know, when she's uh, my age, I wanted to have at least the same uh, privileges and stability that yeah. I have. So that's something that really drives and then you can say, well, but who am I? I'm so small. What can I do? It's all doomed anyway. Okay, but if she looks back at me, uh, I want her to remember me that at least I did what I could. Yes, absolutely. Is that is that kind of how you look at it, or where do yes. you get where do you get? I, we, I guess we need a grounding, or we need maybe it's not hope is not the right word, but like maybe a vision or something, a driving force. Maybe is that a better way? Um, I think a vision is helpful. I definitely, yeah, I think so. It's the it's the it's the gap between what the world is that you want it to be, yeah. and where it is headed, right? right? And it's trying to close that gap. It's trying to to to, to realign things uh, with the vision that you want to see, right? The the those values that you hold deep inside of you coming to fruition, and actually what the world would look like if those values were properly enacted, right? So that's that's the gap that you're trying to close. Um, so yes, the vision I think is helpful. What about Plato's cave? How do you read that? So yes, um, I like asking. You know, I, it's such a broad question. You could say anything, right? Yeah. And, I think uh, I could. <laughs> how are you going to come at it? That's yeah. What I like about doing this podcast. So so yeah. I, I mean. I, I wouldn't claim to know anything particularly insightful about Plato's cave, but but um, but that's the that's the people I want to speak to. I'm not speaking on general. I'm not speaking to Plato experts on this podcast. Good. I'm speaking <laughs> to the people who, because it's like a, a a story anyone can read. You can get the gist of it very quickly, or you can dive very deep into it. But uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think I think for me, you know, one of the most striking things is is this notion that the reality that people live within is what they've grown up with right like that's a really powerful message from that um and also that it doesn't necessarily have to bear a correspondence to a, an external reality potentially right um or or at least it can be weakly connected right so so mm -hmm. um i think that's quite an interesting thing to think about is the way like how do we get our ideas right so, um well, we're we're all socialized into most of the things that we know, right? We 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 um, we're very a, a lot of them, especially the more technical aspects. Um, you know, we go to school, we spend a lot of time there learning about the way the world should work and the way the world does work and why it works that way. 
um, and we, we're then given certain points of view, ideologies, certain certain um, facts that that become common sense. You know, certain ways of seeing the world uh, are kind of you know in, cultured within us in those situations, right? And it's not just in the learning environment; we do it in all our social interactions. In it's why we have differences between different nations and different cultures, and so on. Depending on where you're born, it will determine the religious faith that you might have, the the ways in which you, you you what times you go to bed. All of these things will be dependent on the kind of ways in which you've been brought up and and the culture around you, right? So, um, the language that you speak, you know, whether or not, you, um, so so, why is that important? I think it's important because what we're finding is that the story or the narrative or the framework, the paradigm, that culture that most people are living within doesn't seem to make room for, um, one, the climate and ecological crisis, and two, um, what it would like, look like to live sustainably, right? Um, the logics of the culture that we currently live in um, are not set up in ways that that actually facilitate that. And so, you know, the the... the enculturation that we go through is constantly setting us up to keep recapitulating and, and recreating the destructive behaviors that are leading us down this this path to destruction to our own destruction and there's something very bizarre i mean it's absurd really when you step if you if you take that view of it if you if you're feeling like you're on the outside looking in on it like that then you know, somehow, I mean, there's, oh, we can talk about that in a second, but if, if you take that view, then everything starts to look surreal. It looks strange. Yeah, absolutely. You know, every, no, no behavior makes sense, right? And it's a little, little bit like the, the um, you know, in the in the example, the, the philosopher looking at the prisoners and, you know, the fact that they're just stuck there, not trying to get away and just happily sat there. Um, that seems like that's the situation that I feel most of the people are are in most of the time, right? Like people are going about their daily life completely as though the climate crisis is not bearing down on us. What? Why is it that they can do that? Um, but I, I would just say I, I acknowledge that you know I'm coming at this as someone who's claiming a certain expertise and a certain point of view, and obviously that makes me feel you know important about my <laughs> position and, and so on, right? Which which is not a very um, we should, I, I think, yeah, should raise some some self reflection on on that position as well, because there might be people stuck in the cave that that see shadows and they think they have the solution to everything. And uh, I'm working on a book about this as well, and there I'm also speaking about. It's tempting to see yourself as the suffering hero that, you know, yeah. but no one will listen to me. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, but that's what dictators think as well, right? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's, I mean, that's that's a good note that you that you put in there, that we always have to be critical of ourselves. I think it's that's also part of the scientific attitude, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but even within science, right, I think this is really important as well, that people have an understanding of that, which is most of science is built on trust right like trust is absolutely key to, to to how science works yeah um you know as a somebody who's a specialist in a particular area of science um i have to take it for granted that all the other scientists are going about acting truthfully and honestly and pursuing their work with good intention right um acting to seek out the truth as as, as best they can and you know, not lying about their research, not not fabricating their results, and so on, you know, and so that I can then build on that knowledge reliably, right? Um, and this this notion that you know what we're trying to do is we try and you know build um, consensus around certain facts, which we can then stabilize as a, a kind of a, a, a bit of knowledge that we can then you know use in other situations. So society then has to trust scientists that that's what they've done and and that they've fulfilled that role as well yeah. so trust is kind of completely um no one's going out there to kind of recreate every single experiment that scientists say has been done it, you know they can't they haven't got the skills the, the the resources to do that so we just have to take them at their word and that's a difficult thing for a lot of people to do when you're asking for really big changes to be taken on the on 
that those grounds, right? We're saying we need you to 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 believe our computer models when they tell us that we are headed to this very dangerous uh, situation unless we stop doing all the things we, we normally do. <laughs> you know, that's it's a difficult thing to try and convince people of. And it makes it very vulnerable to people say, yeah, but you see, it's all based on uh, models. It's all based on trust. Yeah, and we talked about this before with Lee McIntyre about one of the most effective strategies of science deniers is to create unrealistic expectations of science. Yeah. And another one is to denigrate. Is that uh, my English is not very good today, but denigrate real experts. And, and so you just show two people on TV yep. and uh, they're, they're both wear white coats. So yeah. uh, how does the audience know? So, and it creates Absolutely. a situation where it seems like it's, well, it's at least 50-50 <laughs> yeah, whether the evidence is out. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Exactly that. And, and I think um, that's why one, one of the things that's really hard, actually, is, is helping build this vision that you were talking about. And I think, you know, there's the other part of Plato's cave is trying to lead the prisoners out of yeah. the cave and, and how difficult it is to, to persuade them to give up what they're familiar with uh, and to trust the, the, you know, the outsider that actually it's it's better outside and it's safer outside and they should come come with them, you know. Um because on what grounds can you build that trust uh, to, to to believe believe them? So I, I think that's really important. The, the other thing it makes us aware of, as you were just alluding to, was the way in which our worlds are constantly being manipulated, right, as well. So so where do we get our information from? Where do we get our sense of reality from? Who do we, who do we turn to to get that information from? If a lot of those sources are actually polluted with disinformation, uh, then that can mean, again, society does not have a good understanding of the situation that we're in, and deliberately so, right? It's not just by accident. It's because there are nefarious forces, vested interests, who are trying to prevent certain things being known and, and certain actions being taken. Um, and there's a famous quote that, that was leaked from George Bush Jr.'s uh, administration, where, you know, one of his spin doctors memos had been leaked and it, it basically said you know should the public come to believe that the science is settled then they will want to see action so we have yeah. to continue to make uh we have to continue to make um scientific uncertainty and and uh, doubt a central feature of the debate you yeah know? but by artifice right they've got to manufacture that doubt uh, and it's the same kind of techniques that the tobacco industry pr companies and so on did around the link between smoking and lung cancer okay and so we know that the, you know there's this playbook that they use to try and <laughs> confuse the public and to slow down action and it's very successful i mean in the uk we have a whole suite of newspapers that constantly are publishing outright lies and 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 nonsense in yeah. my view as a scientist about what the research is saying you know, in order to try and persuade their readership that we shouldn't take actions, uh, you know. Yeah. And and so, again, I see that them as really culpable in in the crisis that we're in. You know, these organisations um, who which should be, I think, informing the public are actually misinforming the public, and and that's a real problem and a barrier to to action. But how do you explain because? We can have clemency for, let's say, the last uh, 10, 20, 30 years or something. But now, uh, so there's a disinformation playbook, but this playbook is out there. Mm. So uh, just not so long ago, there was another article about ExxonMobil. Uh, I saw uh, somewhere on your Twitter timeline the, the climate delay bingo. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you can just listen to uh, a politician and there's a bingo card and you can hear, yeah, but uh, China should act first. If we do this, the economy is going to collapse and yeah. uh, all that yeah, stuff. There's, there's all these talking points that they right. just keep using. I, I think, I mean, one of the things is that the, the types of disinformation have become more sophisticated and they've changed a little bit, right? So in the past, you, you kind of would see outright denial of scientific warnings, right? They would say, oh, you can't trust scientists. The world's not getting warmer. It's getting cooler. You, just to deny that entirely that's not happening anymore then they kind of would deny for a while that you know it was humans that were responsible they would say no it's the sun or it's other things you know it's not us it's not our it's not our fossil fuels now it's become okay well it is our fossil fuels but we shouldn't take action too fast we should you know go more slowly we shouldn't disrupt the economy blah 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 you know every single time every single step of the way they're trying to slow down action they're trying to delay action 
um, so that they can continue digging up more fossil fuels in, and getting stupidly rich doing so, right? So it's a small group of people who benefit from the system as it is now, and they're acting completely at the expense of everybody else. And again, you know, for me, that's that's just so unjust that they can do that and that they would do that, um, that, that it feels like we have to ch challenge them. We have to try and push back. But the thing I keep coming back to is that, okay, okay, okay. Yes, we understand that. So that's uh, just, I really like what you said about, you know, studying the problem. But at one point we have a pretty accurate diagnosis, mm. uh, but you and I, we work in academic institutions. And I don't know what for what kind of conversations you have been having, but let's put it another way. You would expect that of all people, those the scientists and the academics that are working in institutions that are always advertising like we stand for science, science is the most important thing. We have to act evidence based. Yeah, but they're not. <laughs> I no. mean, they're uh, denying. Uh, they're they're acknowledging a lot a lot of part of it, but the. The what about China? Uh, uh, is it really better to eat uh, a vegetarian than a meat burger? Because uh, or avocados also come from South America. All those, I mean, those are the kinds of conversations that that I've been having and that people have been having around me. And I see like you're you're having this conversation. Let's say I've spoken to you or I've spoken to Ernst Jan, yeah. saying the sea level is going to rise seven meters if we're not careful. Yeah. And then you're having a conversation with someone about where you where you present the evidence of how a, a vegetarian diet compares to a meat diet and what impact it would have if an organization of of thousands of employees would have standard vegetarian diet. And they're saying, yeah, but I like meat, so we're not going to do it. Yeah, I mean, there's the other the other podcast that I listened to where you'd interviewed Chris as well. Yeah, and he was talking about the way in which these arguments are rationally coded, but actually they're deeply emotional arguments, right? Um, they're deeply psychological on, on many different layers. About actually, no, I don't want to give this thing that I value up, so I'm going to kind of create all of these arguments as to why I need to be able to keep that thing, right? And so there's this this idea of um, we have um, motivated reasoning, right? that kicks mm -hmm. in and um that's that can be very true for for people you know in academia as well and, and you know i'm sure we do it I, i do it as well um but you know where we try and scrutinize arguments that we don't like much more than the ones that seem to fit with our pre-existing uh, worldview and assumptions and values right and so we're, we're much more critical when it comes to things that we just seemingly feel like don't, don't align with what we agree with already um and that's a way of then um you know reassuring ourselves that you know you found flaws in that line of argument and therefore you can dismiss it um whereas you don't necessarily apply the same scrutiny to the uh, lines of argument that support your position right and so um that that's one way in which that can happen there's also kind of i mean I, i think this this gets so so big so quickly and there's so many ways you could take this as well but one way i think is really important to try and think about this is what we've been talking about already which are the kind of the logics of everyday life and you know trying to appear normal trying to appear proper <laughs> trying to appear uh, reasonable social role and your social face yeah exactly exactly that And so, you know, what is it? What is the appropriate role for a student or for a member of staff in a university? You know, what does their daily life look like? Yeah. What's the what's their um um, you know, in in a lecture theater or when they're at a research conference? What would be a normal way of operating in those conditions? And those social norms can be really powerful, right? That so that to try and speak out or to challenge something that's that's been done maybe for. A really long time is, is traditional um that can be actually very hard to break out of and i think um again that's why you tend to, to see people having to deliberately break conventions um and often that's a lot easier to do in groups than on your own which is why civil disobedience is a kind no. of any is a kind of a disobedience it's a way of kind of breaking a norm a social norm um or 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 a law but the, the so the the social norm also means that if you're an 
employee of an organization breaking a social norm that is supported by those higher up is also kind of jeopardizing can be jeopardizing your career or jeopardizing your job yeah exactly you know which is again why doing it on your own can be more risky than if you were to maybe do that as a part of a bigger group right so why we should try and you know organize petitions to 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 put to management or to to you know organize a public town hall meeting or or to organize a rally you know where where you can be in larger numbers but um i think what we then have to recognize is as well as i think um what chris was saying is there is a psychological toll that just comes from knowing this right and the feelings that of anxiety and, and grief that kind of come up when we feel helpless in the face of this crisis and you were talking about that yourself earlier Um, and so for a lot of people we we switch into modes of what you know of of disavowal um this notion that um on the one hand we know it rationally or intellectually but we then bury that or or hide that from ourselves so that we can just continue with normal daily routine Um, because to have that awareness conscious all the time becomes too overwhelming right so so there's a kind of a splitting that we can do uh, to, to kind of separate those things. And I think, again, scientists who work in this field often have to do that just in order to keep going back to do their work every day, right? So we kind of get quite good at, good at it. Um, and I think a lot of people get stuck in that kind of mode where, um, and again, there's a kind of, there's the, there's the kind of the, social rule, the norm around being a scientist, what is to be a good scientist is to be unemotional, right? It's to, it's to be purely right, rational. Purely rational, yeah. And, um, and that means that we don't, we maintain that disconnect between what we know and what we feel. And, and it's only when those two things really come together that we start to see action, right? Um, there's a famous quote um, by, I think it was a Chinese philosopher that said, you know, to know and not to act is not to know. And the, I think that's a state that we're a lot of us are in, right? Um, and again, I'm not saying that's purely individual. I think this is a social phenomenon. Uh, there's a um, social um, sociologist, social anthropologist called Carrie Norgard, who's written a book called Living in Denial, where she kind of explores this. It's the way in which these we create social silences yeah. um, around climate change in particular. And so there's this kind of phenomenon of climate silence, where, you know, as a topic, it, it doesn't come up very much in daily life. Uh, yeah. People's feelings about climate. Oh, I didn't know that was a thing because that's also, uh, I mean, it's one thing to have a, a discussion with someone and, and nothing happening, but it's another thing to have kind of, I've been calling it taboo as well. Yeah, it's definitely it. It's not to be spoken about. And if, you sp- if you're speaking about it, you're also already breaching actually one social norm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's exactly right. So, so I think this is really key as well. I mean, it, it's, it's, what we find is that this is behind a lot of how social change happens, right? Is that you start breaking those taboos. You start forcing them deliberately as a, as a conscious effort to, you know, um, around gender equality or around uh, LGBT rights and so on. It's always had, they've always had to kind of win this conversation and make a point of bringing it up. And so that it's not a dirty secret. It's not something that we feel uncomfortable about bringing to the, to the discussion and having a proper chat about because unless we talk about it as a group as a society we can't have a politics around it and if we can't have a politics around it we can't build a vision to where we want to go so that's true for within institutions as it is much for a wider society um and so this notion that you know if you're in a boardroom meeting or a committee meeting at university and you know you're there to talk about the new curriculum and maybe what you want to say is oh i really think we should be putting climate change at the heart of our curriculum but you feel very uncomfortable about saying that because you think, well, if I if I raise that, everybody will just maybe look at me like I'm off or that I'm trying to inject, uh, you know, um, you know, try, <laughs> um, trying to disrupt the agenda or whatever. So yeah. I'm just going to not say it, or maybe I'll just say it very quickly at the end or something like that, right? And so the, again, it's it's a kind of builds in the in, the inertia within what we're doing because we're afraid of challenging the normal practices. Um, so my advice, I guess, if there is any, is is to we just have to push through that. We just really have to kind of um, make a point of actually saying, no, I think this is so important right now. We need to talk about this. Um, and then and then there's this interesting thing around 
pluralistic ignorance, right? Which is the notion that we don't know what other people are thinking, but we make yeah. assumptions all the time. And we tend to assume the worst a lot of the time um, because we play it safe. And so, again, what we typically maybe find, I think, in my experience, is that when you say something along the lines of, well, I've been feeling very concerned about climate change and I, I feel like we aren't doing enough and that we should be doing more. The response is, oh, you're feeling like that too? Oh, I've been feeling like that for ages uh, as well. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize other people were feeling like that. Um, and I think that doesn't, it's not surprising when you look at survey data because survey data shows that concern is very, very high. But when you ask people, how concerned do you think others are? They say, oh, I don't think other people are. I think it's only me or it's only a few of us. And the reason they're saying that is because when they look around them, they see everybody carrying on as normal. And so we're all kind of constantly mm. lying to each other and therefore keeping us in us in this state of paralysis. And so, again, one of the, the points of trying to do civil disobedience, as well as other kind of forms of, um, you know, um, uh, speaking out, is to try and show very vividly to other people that they are not alone in thinking that this is a major problem that's not being addressed. And yeah that's that's a kind of a key message that we're trying to pop this bubble that we're all living within uh, of this delusion yeah of the fact that we're alone in our concerns now that's uh i'm starting to understand this um i'm probably gonna say her name wrong uh catherine hayhoe mm -hmm. is that the way you know yeah. her yeah so her TED talk, I've been mentioning it a few times, and she said the most important thing you can do in a climate crisis, talk about it. So I'm starting to understand this on a different level now because, yeah, existential philosophers, like, for, for instance, Heidegger also has these, you know, that the, the, the things that we all share are precisely the things that we cannot really share, like my fear, my anxiety, my loneliness. Mm. I cannot literally share my feeling of lonely. Maybe you feel lonely sometimes, but how do we know that we feel the same? We cannot mm. share. Wittgenstein has been also about this. We cannot. Language doesn't serve us that. But you can, you can have this feeling of sharedness and. Mm -hmm. I guess, I mean, that's what I'm getting so far from you. It's like, okay, the let's say the prisoner returning from the surface to Plato's cave, they fail to convince the people there. But what if there's another one and another one? What is there's, if there's a group on them? Maybe that uh, would work. But but also th this notion that um, maybe what they have to do is reassure them first, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, r rather than just say, state facts uh, or, yeah. or to kind of, you know, uh, only talk to them on a say an intellectual basis maybe they have to really tap into talking about the, their own like get, get people to express their fears what what is it that's scaring you about going outside and you know how could we make it so that you're less scared about going on that journey or whatever right but but um but i think you know maybe those fears are not irrational maybe there there are genuine good good reasons for those fears but maybe they can also be overcome i mean just just stepping back a little bit i think Another phrase that I find re really helpful here is the notion of a fraud bubble. Um, and this is coined by another psychoanalyst called Sally Weintraub. And she's saying that, you know, climate change, we're, we're all living in this fraud bubble in our societies. And that fraud is, is the notion that we can continue with business as usual, right? Or continue the kind of a, a growth-based economy, consumer economy that we, that we have right now, right? And it's similar to other bubbles that there are in in the financial market at times. So, so bubbles like, um, you know, in Holland, the, the tulip bubble in, in, in the 1600s or, or the, the spice bubble, you know, or the housing bubble before the crisis. And we've right now, we've kind of got this carbon bubble that's building, right? This, this notion that we keep investing in new fossil fuel developments and that keeps bringing rewards as long as we keep investing in those developments. But as soon as we stop and we, we accept reality that um, we can't keep doing that, that bubble starts to lose value and it can maybe lose value very quickly. Um, and so there's a kind of a, a, there's there's a logic that's to say, keep inflating it, keep pushing into it, because that's how we keep, um, uh, you know, this, 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 the system going is, is the fact that this this is based on this assumption that it's going to stay stay like that. 
And again, there's, so there's a danger here that we, we, you know, we're trapped because we keep investing in the status quo and that makes it even more fragile and more at odds with reality. And there's a bigger gap emerging between, you know, we talk about um, an emissions gap or a production gap in, you know, the UN reports to say, you know, our climate policy is a way of course so that we're not going to meet our targets, right? And that gap keeps getting bigger. And it gets to the point where to try and close that gap becomes actually quite destabilizing to society. Um, and so so then we're in a kind of a, a, a catch-22 where, you know, we need we know we have to take action, but the longer we wait, the harder it gets. And the more radical the actions will have to be as well yeah, to have the same right. effect. We, we've yeah. kind of got to that point now. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the reality. Um, but, you know, we've got to find ways of trying to... Um, to now deflate that bubble without it popping as, as best we can. Uh, and that takes courage, it takes leadership, and it and it's going to, you know, but at the moment, um, we're not seeing that because we're not even really able to address it and, and point it out that that's what's happening. Hmm. Well, great. So, the, I mean, I had a lot of insights now in what concerned people in general can do, but also especially scientists, which is, you know, speak about it, speak to each other, but also organize. Um, so if if anyone is listening to this, who's working at an uh, academic institution in any position of power, maybe uh, two, because you kind of have two identities, right? Your natural scientist identity. What are the top three actions that any university or academic institution could take to do their part in the climate crisis and the other thing is maybe what are the top three things that they could do to support yeah this movement this climate movement as, as a social movement i mean i start to see these things converging i try and bring them together um i think what we need is more activists uh in the academy uh and i think um uh, a colleague of mine uses a phrase you know we need to go from publications to public actions mm. and I think, what does that mean? What does that look like? And I th so, so I think the first question that we have to grapple with as as academics is what is the purpose of a university in a time of climate emergency? Um, you know, the timescales that we're talking about are not aligned to the timescales of our research agendas, right? Normally, which are to kind of, you know, produce research that gets published and then maybe in a few decades um, might lead to something, right? Or um, likewise, you know, our teaching, uh, you know, we, we, we teach young uh, people in the hope that their ideas will, will uh, influence how they then can go and, you know, work or build new institutions. We don't have time for a lot of that, right? So, yeah. so, so we have to find ways of um, taking action now and what are the kind of the, the, the levers that we can pull now and, and, that I think needs a shift in our thinking that rather than purely uh, uh, taking kind of, I think, yeah, I think, I, I guess what I'm saying is that I think we need to have much more active research where we are out there trying to make changes in the world and then trying to reflect on how we're going about doing that. Uh, I think that's the kind of uh, the function that universities could play. And that actually the skills that we need to be teaching students right now are skills in how to create system transformation, how to challenge existing power hierarchies, how to challenge, um, you know, the, these logics that maintain uh, the, the status quo. Those are uncomfortable things to be to be bringing into the classroom. Um, I don't think it's okay at this point to simply stand back and, and give a lecture saying, this is the climate crisis, go away, do something about it. You know, <laughs> I think we have to take a much more active role in saying, no, like we're going to stand next to you as young people coming through our institution and help you build the world that you that you want to see um, and equip you with the skills that you need to, to build that world. And a lot of those skills are going to be, um, I think, skills in, in how to campaign, how, mm. how to um, build public pressure to put on to decision makers. Uh, and maybe that should start um, within our own institutions. You know, can we work with students to push for changes that they want to see in the university and help them uh, learn how to do that in their local communities, perhaps potentially in the local cities that we're situated in. What would that look like? And, uh, you know, I've worked on a really interesting project for a while 
in colleges in the UK where we were, you know, doing something a bit like that, where we were teaching 16 to 18 year olds how to run a political campaign hmm. or uh, um or a social change that you know the students worked on what what it is they wanted to see and and how how and then we kind of supported them to think about how to develop action plans in order to achieve it and you know the students learned through that how to be a democratically engaged citizen they learned what it was to have collective agency um you know how to organize uh, and identify pressure points and so on right yeah. and 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 they built the skills that they needed in order to have persuasive conversations or to, in order to bring other people on board and, and, and to build a movement. Yeah, and that, that's one of the things I, I liked about the, the, so the article from Publications to Public Actions. I'll put a link as well, uh, where you say, well, now this is about climate. But actually, if you start implementing these changes and you teach them those skills, that has, I mean, there's lots of other crises as well, and there's lots of other social issues with diversity and inequality and uh, all that stuff that it will be helpful as well. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, from my point of view, most of these crises all share kind of common common roots. Right. Exactly. Um, uh, climate justice, right? But, yeah, but but I think from that perspective, these skills, like you say, they're they, they're transferable. They're intersectional, yeah. and um, so that's that's one thing. Um, I, I think within universities. Um, I do think that we we need scientists to be much more outspoken, uh, and I think maybe to, to as part of that to actually speak more emotionally as well. Um, I think, um, as I was trying to say, you know, information on its own doesn't lead to action uh, necessarily. It can just bounce off people, or or we know that, right? We need to look at the kind of skills of rhetoric. I think, <laughs> you know, that <laughs> how we how we tell narratives, how we tell stories that we can put meaning around what we know. And I think, for me, that kind of means recognizing that I'm not simply a scientist or a researcher. I'm also a scholar uh, who exists within an academic community and has responsibilities to the students and other members of the academic community. Um, what does it look like to act on those duties and those responsibilities? Um, I'm also a citizen. I'm also a member of my community uh, in in Cardiff, where I live. You know, what does what kind of responsibilities does that mean that I have as well? And so, this is where I think again, thinking about um, it doesn't make sense to me this idea that scientists should somehow remain apart from society or you know, pretend as though we're we're completely neutral about what's happening, uh, in order to kind of maintain a kind of a false appearance of objectivity. I think it's much more honest and needed at this time that instead we we own uh, we're explicit about our values and and what it is that we we think is important, and and so that the, our audience can judge us based on that. You know, they can they can make sense of what we're telling them with respect to the values that we say we hold and and. That's. I don't think that's a, anything wrong with that. I mean, we we go to our doctors expecting them to want to make us healthy, right? We go to sustainability scientists to, because we know that they want to try and protect uh, our planet and make sure it's habitable and healthy. Yeah, and I mean, uh, the the whole the medical profession is based on the value of promoting health, and those are all values as well, right? Exactly, exactly. So, I, I think. We, we really need to kind of change our thinking uh, quite rapidly on, on, on those areas. Um, and then and then finally, like, as uh, you know, right now, I think, as you were saying, Mario, you know, we are seeing governments clamping down on protest um, and human rights. I think it's really important that academics are out there speaking out against that. If I'm arrested, yeah, I'm a, if I'm a scientist at a protest and I'm mistreated by the police, is my institution going to be on my side or is it going to be on the government side yes absolutely i mean i would really hope they'd be on your side <laughs> uh you know academic freedom and everything but but also you know we've we've got trade unions that should be representing us and defending our our, our rights there and things but i think particularly we 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 are going to we we know <laughs> i think now that governments won't act without social pressure so you know those groups out there in society that are trying to create that social pressure are incredibly valued to all of our futures, our, our sakes, right? So if governments are clamping down and repressing them, then we lose our hope 
we like we, we're losing those opportunities to actually get ourselves out of this mess and it could lead us into you know very bad places as well because obviously you know the, the more disruptive climate change gets the more authoritarian governments might become in response to that and i think in those circumstances we're going to see you know worse outcomes uh, yeah. in terms of impacts right because you know in order to protect the, the people who are most marginalized in societies we need to have open democracies that value human rights um and again people are going to need to be able to protest in order to protect those so at this time i think it's really important that all of us are defending protesters and their rights and i think the more that academics speak out about that the better yeah and i uh that's why i think that maybe one of the most important professions right now is the lawyer because they're doing great work right now a lot of them and i think yeah actually my a lot of my hope is there as well <laughs> i i'm not a law expert i think you're not either but i think uh I, i'm going to i want to speak to some of them <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely I, i think so too i mean i think there's hope in lots of places there, there's lots of people waking up and trying to take action where they can and finding communities and, and using the skills and the knowledge that they have um in order to push for change right and there's so many levers that we have to pull and we have to pull them all together so yeah i think the law is really key there like you say i mean we've just had a really interesting development in the uk where we've had um you know over a hundred senior lawyers now announce that they will refuse to prosecute peaceful climate protesters oh that's so inspiring yeah yeah it's very inspiring i mean for me it's incredibly heartening but you know that's that's a real um that's a really brave thing for them to do it kind of challenges the norms within their institutions they, they, you know potentially puts them in breach of their professional ethics mm -hmm. um ethics which i think you know need to be challenged if, if that's if that's what they're doing but but um but it it tells us i think the severity of the moment that we're in that lawyers who understand what's going on are willing to take those kind of actions right similarly you know doctors i've seen organizing as well to protect public health um and they they you know they they're organizing in lots of different ways some some of them are looking at how do they decarbonize their hospitals and their um uh you know the supply chains and and so on but others are looking at how to put pressure on governments in order to you know invest in infrastructure that will decarbonize societies knowing that climate change is the greatest health threat of the century so you know whichever whichever sector or discipline that you're in there is a way to be active on on, on these issues and i think that's true very much of the university community right there's, there's no such thing as saying oh well my 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 department or my discipline doesn't relate to climate change because climate change affects everything and everything impacts on on the climate so whether or not yeah you're, you're studying humanities or or you're studying medicine or you're studying law there is something you should be learning right now about what it is to take action on on the climate change oh, thank you so much i just want to end with the most concrete question that i can think of so uh if people really want to get into action if they want to propose something to their department or if uh, university leaders want to do something it must be very concrete i already mentioned okay switching to a standard vegetarian diet what are the other like top three things that they can do right now and that would be effective within a university setting mm -hmm. there's kind of the easy things to say like like i think universities should stop taking any sponsorship from fossil fuel companies right i don't think they should take any research funding from them they should refuse to collaborate with them right um there's a there's a group called fossil free research that are really trying to push that now and um we've seen some universities who've said that they will cut ties in that way so that that would be a thing that i think universities should really consider doing instantaneously like you say there's things that we can do on campus that would really set a, a good example like making sure that none of our canteens or outlets uh you know that they switch to a more plant-based menu um we've seen universities in the uk now really going down that route uh and and i think again they're setting an example um and that's normally done you know because of students pushing for it uh, and demanding those kind of changes so it's taken activism to 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 accomplish those things but then they become a, a signal to to the rest of society so i think there's ways in which we can lead by example and then try and use those examples to put pressure on other parts of the system right so once you've done it in your university can you then go and pressure your local council to do the same 
Can you, you know, work with local schools in the area to do the same? Can you work with your local hospital to do the same? So, so once we, we get that ball rolling, we can then try and build from that example. I, I think one of the most important things, I think, is to look at curriculum reform. I think yeah. we really desperately need to rewrite curricula around what it would be to, to build a sustainable society. That's something again, at least in the UK, and I've seen that students are really demanding. I've seen, I've seen, uh, you know, there's, there's, they're trying to push for a bill to go through Parliament in the UK at the moment, written by school students, asking for there the to be um, uh, climate emergency materials in every single subject that they learn, um, and I think universities should be doing the same thing, uh, and and potentially, you know, a course that all students take uh, so that they've got a common framework, a common understanding, a common way of talking together that's very interdisciplinary about the kind of things that we have to do. Um, because if we don't have that um, at universities, then how how is that going to get into the rest of society? And I think that's something that I would really, really like to see more. One of the reasons that I think scientists should consider taking action or, or any scientist takes action is because of the the role that's that universities play and the social conditions that allow those universities to function depend universities depend on stable societies they depend on stable environmental conditions that underpin those societies and it's exactly those conditions that are being disrupted by climate change and we know that you know if we if we see uh, continue as we are till the end of the century that those conditions won't exist anymore in many parts of the world and we could well see you know, institutions like ours crumbling because of that. So if we are there really as academics, scholars, trying to maintain our role as institutions that build and maintain and hand over knowledge from generation to generation, then in order to continue playing that function, we have to protect the social and environmental conditions that enable universities to exist in order to do that. So I think all of us as academics can see that we have something at stake here. You know, we've all spent our lives you know, researching very particular topics because we value them and we want to see that knowledge handed down and, and maintained. And yet it won't be, there won't be someone to hand it down to if we don't really look after the conditions that we are in. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's a, there's kind of just to put that in a catchphrase, you know, there's no professorships on a dead planet. Uh, <laughs> you know, why are we doing this if not to to look after the knowledge that we're producing? And that means looking after and making sure that we live in a sustainable society. So if if none of the other things that we said persuaded you to, to take action, then maybe that, that one will. Well, thank you so much. It has been very inspiring and enlightening to speak to you. Thank you, Mario. It's been fun. And thank you for listening. Check out the show notes for more information on Aaron and links to his articles and to Scientist Rebellion website. And go to livefromplatoscave.com for other episodes. In case you're interested, I recently did an interview with Sabine Winters for her podcast Scientific Imagination. It's on imagining the climate crisis. So you can find the link in the description as well. I hope to see you again next time. <laughs>